Welcome to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. For the last 13 years, Verizon, the US telecoms to media to tech company, has surveyed data breaches around the world. The project has expanded to include government and other commercial data sources. This year's report charts the rise of ransomware, the continuing problems of insider threats and accidental data loss, and the financial origins of cyber attacks. The DBIR is now one of the largest and longest-running security surveys, as Verizon's global head of cybersecurity strategy, John Loveland, explains. The original intention, and still remains the intention today, is to share information about what we're seeing from a data breach perspective, what we're seeing in the cybersecurity industry. And in the early days, uh, it was really based on the investigations uh, that we conducted as a uh, as part of our security professional services or consulting services that we provide to companies. Uh, it was a means of sharing information of what we saw from the field, right? And, and over the years, what we found is that um, this information, we could make it more rich and we could provide more context if we had contributions from other companies as well and other uh, government agencies. And so over the years, we've added contributors uh, to the data sources. So for example, we started early with the US Secret Service, uh, then we added data from the US FBI, uh, then we added information from various government agencies across the globe, uh, as well as private sector industries and technology vendors. So this year we have 81 contributors to the report, uh, and we looked at through that 157,000 incidents, security incidents, of which we identified f- close to 4,000 data breaches. And the difference between a breach and an incident is a data breach is when we we have a confirmed disclosure of data. Uh, so you can have an incident that doesn't actually have uh, a data disclosure. It's not categorized as a breach. And then you have ones where data has been taken taken out and stolen from an organization. And that's what we call a data breach. And that nuance is quite important because actually there's a lot of incidents out there where security has failed, but there isn't necessarily a loss. So you know, a great example of that is a DDoS attack. Uh, so we see DDoS attacks quite prevalent from a security incident perspective, but rarely do they result in a confirmed data breach. Um, and then you have other incidents where we know there's been uh, an infiltration by a bad guy into an organization, but the uh, the incident was contained and no data was extracted. So it's important to distinguish between those two um, because we can look at all of the different elements of a, uh, a particular security incident and categorize it sort of appro- appropriately. So if you could, could you walk us through the key findings for this year? Yeah, you bet. So there's a number of of findings that uh, really extend kind of a pattern that we've seen over the last several years. So for example, ransomware continues to increase in prevalence. And it's become one of the more primary attack vectors that we see, particularly as you move into small and medium business. That remains problematic for a number of different industries and businesses of all types and sizes. The other key finding is, and, and this is perhaps not too surprising given the increasing shift of workload and applications into the cloud is that we see an increasing focus on the part of, of hackers 
on cloud applications. That's where the data is, right? That's where the information that could be valuable to uh, bad guys resides. And so increasingly that's become the target for those attacks. And so we've seen a significant uh, increase in attacks on uh, those web applications over the last year. And then beyond that, financial motivation continues to be the key rationale reason behind these attacks, right? So we see a lot in the press about theft of intellectual property from nation states uh, or other you know, large-scale attacks perpetrated for reasons other than financial gain. But by and large, uh, a good three-quarters uh, or more of the attacks that we've seen, the primary motivation or motivator is, is financial gain. That remains sort of the, you know, the predominant issue that we see. The other is, is that we see uh, a lot of external actors uh, whether they be you know cyber criminals or nation states and others as being the sort of the primary actors in these you know while uh, insider threat remains prevalent particularly in certain industries uh, it's by and large most of these attacks are perpetrated by external parties and you're seeing the attempts at financial gain increasing quite significantly i think it was 71% in 2019 and 86% this year yeah that's right so if you look at you know back in the early days when we first started doing the um, the breach report you'd see all sorts of different motivations for external hackers, right? Whether it be what we used to call hacktivism. <laughs> so you have uh, parties that are interested in political points of view or what have you wreaking havoc on you know, websites. Um, you have theft of intellectual property, all sorts of, of rationale behind, behind these attacks. It's increasingly moving to really more of a, you know, a financial motivations. And I can't help but think that ransomware and the uptick in ransomware is really driving a lot of that as well. It's just become such a, uh, a you know, low-hanging fruit for particularly unskilled hackers to, to buy ransomware on the dark web or software code for ransomware on the dark web and execute that against, against victims. And, so, and that's, that's purely financial motivated. It's actually interesting to run through the figures. So you're saying 86% is financially motivated, 70% is carried out by external actors and then 55% is organized crime so that suggests then that businesses organizations are being actively targeted by crime groups in order to extract money from them uh, is that oversimplifying it or is that what we're seeing oh, I mean, that's spot on right i mean it's yeah criminals go where the money is <laughs> that's the bottom line and and there's there's so much to be gained uh, by exploiting vulnerabilities and gaining access to whether it be you know personally identifiable information or financial bank accounts or what have you, um, that you know the criminals will go where the money is, and so that's that's increasingly the case. And then some of the other incidents that you're tracking, the credential theft, for example, much of that is also oriented towards gaining access to these sensitive systems in order to monetize the attack. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you think of this increasing shift to cloud applications or software as a service applications. You know, if you're contracting with a company like salesforce.com, you're um, expecting that that organization is going to provide very high quality security to keep hackers from entering in sort of, you know, via traditional means of, you know, hacking in systems and things like that. So the path of least resistance for uh, hackers to cloud applications is by, gaining access to user credentials, right? So if I have your user ID and your password uh, into Salesforce, then I can gain ready access into a Salesforce application. And the same is true with you know, all of these SaaS applications. 
the predominant means by which these uh, uh, user credentials are being gathered is through phishing. You know, phishing remains the predominant uh, attack vector or um, the tactic that the uh, hackers are using to gain access to user credentials as well as to uh, execute malware and other um, you know, ransomware type um, uh, attacks on companies is, is via phishing attacks. And are we also seeing attacks targeting in-house developed web applications or uh, perhaps more niche ones? Yeah, we are. I mean, we're seeing attacks on, you know, um, particularly in cloud-based development applications, you know, platform as a service, development uh, capabilities as a service. Uh, those, again, you know, that it's it falls in the category typically of theft of intellectual property as a key motive. Uh, so it's a smaller percentage of the attacks that we see, but it certainly is something that we see regularly. Do you think this is a strategic or even an existential threat to organizations? If the level of crime is so high, is this something that if organizations fail to act on it, it could put them out of business? Well, look, we've we've already seen that from certain small and medium businesses, and we've certainly seen some you know, major businesses take a significant hit to their share price. Um, I think of the Equifax attack that happened several years ago here in the U.S., um, where the share value dropped upwards of 60% as a result of the hack over time. I think companies are starting to realize cyber risk is one of the more significant risks that they face as a business. Um, it was interesting to see, um, I think it was about a year ago, Citibank, official Citibank was quoted in saying that cyber risk is their single biggest risk they face to their business. And, and that's quite astonishing when you think about the business that Citibank is in, right? And all the risks that they face, whether it be financial market risk, uh, geographic risk, political risk, and everything else to say that cyber risk is the single biggest risk they face. Uh, that is pretty astonishing. And I think as, as businesses move increasingly online and remote workers uh, continue to proliferate as a result of you know, the COVID crisis, but even beyond extending you know, past that, you're going to see that uh, you know, cyber risk continue to increase. You know, as the attack surface expands, we expect to see cyber risk continue to expand as well. And so it's, it's an area that, you know, for companies that haven't prioritized it, it's certainly an area that they ought to be prioritizing, at least looking at it and evaluating. And one of the, you know, primary ways that they can start um, examining their business and, and understanding sort of where their risks and vulnerabilities are uh, is by examining the data. And that goes back to the, really the primary purpose of the data breach investigations report is to share data about the likelihood of attacks, the prevalence of attack uh, methods, and this allows for more increased prioritization part of companies as to where they ought to be focusing their efforts and their spending to mitigate that cyber risk. Can one business learn from the experience of another? I sure hope so. <laughs> and again, I think that that's, that's what we're trying to achieve here. One of the, the areas that we've really expanded over the last several years has been our focus on looking at the attacks by vertical industry. We feel like there are certain patterns, uh, uh, whether it be attack motivations, uh, attack patterns, that you know, the, the, the types of attackers that these industries are likely to face. You can learn from uh, your industry peers as to sort of what's mo most prevalent and where you ought to be focusing your resources. So I, I believe that there's significant advantage in leveraging data to help make better decisions about where to prioritize your efforts. And by prioritizing your efforts and your spending in, in areas of greatest risk and vulnerability, the greater likelihood you have of you know, preventing or at least mitigating the risks associated with that.
are we seeing changes in board level attitudes to risk in the cyber domain at the moment? Uh, are they becoming more aware of it? And said you've cited the example of Citibank there. That seems to me uh, to be quite a shift for a financial services organization. But is that a more general trend? Well, we're certainly seeing it with public companies, right? So uh, increasingly, we're seeing a very active regulatory environment. Rather, so whether it be at the sort of the global level, the GDPR level, at the state level in the U.S., uh, regulations by industries, regulations coming out of federal government, state governments around privacy and things like that, you're seeing an increasing focus on the part of the regulators. Uh, on company security practices, particularly as it relates to sensitive data, whether it be regulated health data or financial data, personal, personally identifiable information, things like that. You're seeing an, you know, an increased regulatory scrutiny on those topics. And so public companies, you know, I think for the last several years, and you know, if you're in financial services, even longer than that, uh, have been forced to comply with regulatory mandates. You know, at the same time, I, I think that boards are starting to realize that in addition to the regulatory scrutiny they face, they also face scrutiny from shareholders. Um, you know, to the extent that there is a massive security breach that have, could have an impact on, you know, brand value and things like that, you know, that, that has a direct impact on share price. And so it's gaining the attention uh, of boards. I think as you move, um, you know, perhaps out of the re heavily regulated industries into uh, sectors such as, you know, the public sector, right? So government agencies or perhaps areas like, you know, construction and real estate and areas like that, that really haven't been subject to some of the regulatory mandates. There perhaps is less of a, uh, a realization of, uh, you know, the potential exposure associated with cybersecurity. And so the spending hasn't been as much as it has in these other industries. But I, I look, I tell you, uh, you know, as I look at what's happened with ransomware and the increasing sort of proliferation of, of, of phishing and malware and, you know, victimization across all different types of industries, it, it has to be a focus for every company. Nobody is immune. Everybody has a target. If there is, if there's money to be had, uh, the bad guys will find a way in. So if they have, if the companies haven't got religion yet, uh, it's certainly time for them to consider it. And in the public sector, it's as much about citizen trust in what you're doing as well as anything else, because if people don't trust you to be a responsible custodian of your data, then they might not want to move on to online forms of working, which, of course, uh, the public sector needs to do for efficiency reasons. In terms of um, the split between the public and the private sector, there's something that stood out for me in the reports was that we are still seeing quite high levels of insider threats across the board anyway. I know, um, you know, you made the point earlier about most of the financially motivated attacks being outsiders, but the insider threat is certainly still there. Uh, but there's also some differentials between the rates of error, user error, insider breaches in the public and private sector. So perhaps um, could you expand on that a little bit more for us? Yes, happy to. So, um, you know, I, I, th I think the first point here is that when we say insider threat or we we term a, um, a, a breach to be caused by an insider. It's not necessarily a, a malicious insider. The security incident itself may not have been for nefarious purposes. It could have very likely and typically is more error related. So whether it be you know misconfiguration of a uh, of, of a web application that makes certain data that should be private public, whether it be leaving a laptop 
uh, losing a laptop with valuable information on it, things like that, all of those fall into the camp of insider threat. I don't want it to come across that it's, it's purely sort of malicious actors. And a lot of times it's just errors. We do see in the public sector a continued prevalence of insider threat. I would say that there's several reasons for that. We still, for better or worse, in a lot of cases, are in a paper-based environment. Uh, and I think the other area that we see a lot of insider threat is in hospitals and healthcare, uh, where we know there's a lot of paper and sensitive data that's constantly flowing. Um, and so that's, that's problematic. Uh, B, I believe that there are varying levels of cybersecurity awareness, particularly at government agencies, where you know, perhaps it's a result of just being in, the, in uh, not having some, some of the same sort of scrutinies that private sector has had from a security perspective. They haven't built the same sort of cyberware culture, if you will. See, uh, you've got um, uh, outdated systems that may not have the level of security that private sector companies, uh, private sector employers would have. Fundamentally, there is uh, increased risk of, of the data that's being handled. So you see increasingly that, you know, whether it be in the U.S. Social Security information or, um, you know, tax return information and things like that, you've got data that is incredibly valuable and, um, you know, there's a risk of, you know, that data being made public or somehow left unattended that could create that security risk. So it's an area of focus in, in speaking with our government clients, both at the, uh, at the local level as well as at the federal level. You know, we continue to emphasize the importance of building that cyber aware culture to help mitigate some of that insider threat. So there again, it's important to distinguish between the events that cause a loss, the incidents that cause a loss, um, potentially a financial loss, and those that are, are more uh, of an embarrassment or you know a breach of your data protection, your, your organization's data protection rules, but not necessarily directly harmful. You talked about the security culture and the awareness issues, though. What sort of movement are we seeing on that? Because it's an ongoing problem, isn't it? It is. And I, you know, I think that this is an area where the industry, um, speaking of the cybersecurity industry, needs to get better. And that is trying to remove uh, increasingly more of uh, sort of the human factor out of, um, out of security. Because you think of the, you know, the primary attack vector for you know, compromised user credentials and then by extension, accessing you know privileged or private information you know being phishing right uh you know if i if i if i send a thousand emails into an organization all i need is one person to click on it and i've gained access there is a continued risk um on the part of organizations on you know the actions of a small handful of individuals and i think we as an industry need to get better at removing the human equation as much as we can and I think that, you know, there's technology advances, whether it be moving away from, you know, passwords and more into biometrics and multi-factor authentication and things like that, that will help that. Um, I think there's also, you know, technology that's emerging that helps to uh, sequester emails to prevent access to known malicious sites. Um, there's lots of things that we can do and get better at. And I, I think that, that I know that's a key area of focus for us as an industry. But at the end of the day, it still requires the creation of, you know, what we like to call a cyberware culture, right? So I, I think back to, you know, the, the post 9-11 days when we all moved to badges, entry badges for physical access into buildings and things like that. That was a shift, right? I mean, you, certainly some people had badges and they had access controls and things like that, but now it's, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. And 
you know, I know at the Verizon building, we have signs everywhere that say, you know, that warn against tailgating or allowing tailgating people to come in without badging in or make sure you wear your badge at all times and it's viewable. You know, we need to create that same sort of sense of responsibility on the part of, of the individuals and the employees for cybersecurity, making them recognize that they're a valuable link in the chain and uh, in, in preventing cyber attacks and then reinforcing that training over time. So, so often we see companies do a one and done type training session on cybersecurity and it's, it's as quickly forgot as it was learned. And there, so there has to be a more pervasive culture of training and you know, awareness building um, to really help address this issue of sort of the, you know, the challenges of you know, that insiders can pose to the cybersecurity threats. Yeah, so that certainly needs to be continuous. Uh, something else that you did highlight, though, in the report was that a lot of the attacks, not all, but a lot, follow an established pattern. And so it should be possible to block some or even most of those because the way the attacker comes into the organization is already known. Uh, could you just explain how that that works or, or what you're suggesting that organizations should do based on that intel? This is one of the key reasons why we do the report, right? And so people can learn from experience and learn from other companies that have been breached as to what the critical vulnerabilities and attack patterns are and what methods and, step, and steps attackers will take to infiltrate organizations and what are the most prevalent attack patterns. Because if you can focus your defenses in what, you know, what we call uh, on the kill chain, right, which is really addressing you know, the different steps uh, of the breach or the security incidents that were taken, then the more you can focus and prioritize your, your spending, your effort, your training, your technology on those particular problems, right? So, if, you know, the whole key, you know, the key uses of this report is to leverage data to focus your efforts on those areas that are going to make the biggest difference. And if we know what those key steps are in the kill chain, in the process by which um, hackers gain access to critical information, then we can take very directed focus action to prevent those and thereby reduce reducing our overall risk. So it really falls into this, you know, the overall concept here of how do you leverage data to make better decisions about where to prioritize efforts. Are businesses getting better at learning those lessons? I think they are. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've seen and sort of part of the, you know, one of the bits of good news out of the report this year is that some of the more um, uh, traditionally sort of prevalent attack vectors, whether it be you know, Trojans or sort of direct web app attacks have actually reduced in volume. And we think that that's directly attributable to uh, companies heeding our advice to, to really focus on, on patch management and ensuring that they've got appropriate security um, uh, updates applied to systems and various applications. So we've actually seen companies get better with their what we call cyber hygiene. Uh, in terms of patch management, patching cadence, and so that's you know that's a positive aspect, and we you know we feel like we play a role in that, right? Just just by showing and highlighting you know the vulnerabilities exploited as a result of failure to patch. You know the other the other aspect of that, I, I, we certainly can't take all the credit for. You know, security research has increased significantly, and you know there's an entire industry that's emerged of security researchers who are looking for vulnerabilities in web apps, looking for vulnerabilities sort of across, across the entire sort of IT infrastructure and, and pointing those out. 
and uh, sometimes that's embarrassing uh, for the for the recipient of that of, of the uh, of that research. But at the end of the day, you know that research is contributing to uh, an uh, I think a, a, an upskilling or, or reduction of risk, um, uh, you know across the, across various industries and companies. That's good to hear. Just finally, then um, breaking out the figures by region in EMEA, you're seeing slightly different numbers. So uh, denial of service attacks make up 80% of incidents, uh, 40% of breaches targeting web applications and 14% associated with uh, cyber espionage. Is there any um, light that the research sheds on why there are differentials between, say, North America and EMEA? Sometimes it's it's a a function of the data that we receive. Um, you know, we have seen, uh, particularly as it relates to GDPR, an increase in reporting of of security incidents and breaches. Um, so that's led to um, you know significant uh, increase in in the number of breaches that we've seen, you know, coming out of EMEA. Uh, you know, I think in general, you know, we can draw minor distinctions among the regions. But at the end of the day, it, it really comes down to some of the key findings that we discussed previously, right? Financial motivation remains key. Uh, web applications, because they're increasingly, uh, you know, the repository of sensitive data is the, is the, is the likely focus for, for threat actors. Most of the actors are external, but you have, you know, in, in EMEA, for, for some reason, there's actually a, a lower incident of insider threat. Uh, so perhaps that's indicative of, of more of a cyberware culture. Um, you know, so, you know, while you can draw some very uh, nuanced distinctions between some of the regions, you know, a lot of the patterns ring true and, hang, and, and remain the same across you know, all regions as well. John Loveland from Verizon on the key findings of this year's Data Breach Investigation Report. That's all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks time. But meanwhile, do subscribe at securityinsights.co.uk or on Google Play or iTunes. Thank you for listening.